too much of your time, so let's stick on the record button. Uh, okay, cool, it's all working. Great. All right. We are good. Let's do this. G'day, everyone. Welcome to Lubrication Experts. Uh, today, got a really important interview. Uh, so we're going to be talking about uh, lubrication and its relation to sustainability in general. So um, this one is uh, obviously very important for everyone who either cares about the planet or simply cares about their bottom line, right? Either way, I think it kind of works. Um, this is actually a little bit of a riff on um, a couple of uh, interviews, well, sorry, not interviews, um, a, a couple of articles that were published in Precision Lubrication Magazine. So some of you may know um, I'm involved in that. There's a, a really, really strong editorial board as well. And one of those people is Greg Livingston from Fluitech. So Greg has written a couple of fantastic articles and there's another one about to be published on uh, the theme of sustainable lubrication. And so we're going to cover some of the same ground, but also um, broaden it a little bit as well for the, for the purposes of this interview. Now, Greg, is a returning guest, so um, backed by popular demand. And uh, so, Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Rafe, welcome to be here. Thank you again for the invitation. I just want to point out that I, I don't have a lot of time in my daily schedule to watch YouTube videos, and I am so grateful that you have made this uh, podcast, um, which I listen to religiously and love. So thank you so much for, for doing that and appreciate being back here. Yeah, awesome. I mean, funnily enough, there's uh, a lot of people share that opinion. So I think there's probably, I think, double to triple the number of people that actually listen to the podcast versus watch it, which makes a lot of sense, right? Because, you know, I think it, it sort of lends itself more to an audio format. Uh, there's not a huge amount of differentiation in the video format, and it just sort of takes your attention away from what you're actually concentrating on. So this longer format, I think, lends itself a little bit more to listening to it on a run or in the car or on the way to work or something like that. So yeah, uh, definitely. Um, I should probably be focusing more on the audio format, but uh, there, there you have it. Now, just to, to jump straight into it, um, and if we can kind of contextualize the importance of lubrication uh, to sustainability, right? So by some estimates, um, I've seen that industrial energy consumption represents in that ballpark of about of a third of total energy consumption, right? And you've got transportation is roughly another third. There are some estimates that indicate like one quarter, I think, is the number I've seen. There was a publication by uh, Holberg and Erdemir in 2017 that indicated there was about a, a quarter of um, all energy consumption is lost due to friction. Now, in your experience, is industry actually aware of how big those numbers are? Um, and if not, what's some of the kind of work that we can do as an industry to uh, kind of promote our field in this way and, and more clearly link it to sustainability? 
great question. Uh, so first, before I jump into industry, I think societally, there's not a lot of awareness on tribology. So just when people have a, their knee, they have to get an artificial knee or something, they don't think about the tribology that goes into lubricating the knee. Um, if there's a major earthquake, no one thinks about the tribology of uh, tectonic plates interacting. Um, so societally, I think we have a long ways to go to recognize the the value and importance of tribology. But moving into our industry, where everyone knows what tribology is, there's still a pretty significant lack of knowledge on the critical role that lubrication plays in reducing friction and how that is then correlated to energy consumption. So I think the focus on lubricants and industrial lubricants in the space that I am in is really on reliability engineering and how lubricants can be used to make, um, or how lubricants can be used to maintain or enhance the performance of equipment. Um, ironically, these are the same objectives as trying to make your lubricant more sustainable. So optimizing the performance of a lubricant can be directly correlated to its energy usage and, and carbon footprint. So how can we better communicate this to the industry? Well, I think one way is just by tying this link between uh, sustainability and, and responsible lubricant management, setting up a good lubricant uh, program. All of this um, lends itself well to uh, sustainability. And I think as companies become more committed to decarbonization, all aspects of their operations will be scrutinized and uh, getting down to eventually down to lubrication and how lubricants can actually improve the energy efficiency of their, their operation. Yeah, that's really, uh, that's really interesting. I mean, maybe just as a, a bit of a sidebar, if anyone um, wants some material that's really just interesting about tribology, not necessarily like, you know, a popular, uh, popular work or anything like that. But what I mean by that is the, uh, the book Sticky by Laurie Winkless, who was actually on episode 16 of this podcast, is a fantastic introduction to all the ways that tribology affects our lives, you know, through paints, sealers, uh, boats, you know, knee reconstructions, even like the, the feet on a gecko. Um, so that was a really kind of like a, a really great way of popularizing tribology um, for anyone that, that wants kind of like a general introduction to it. But more specifically, when we're talking about... In oh, sorry. Also, a day. Read, I bought that book and read it after I listened to your podcast. So very good suggestion. <laughs> that, was, yeah. that was an excellent podcast. Yeah, awesome. Um, now, obviously, trying to focus a little bit more on uh, industry. Um, and you, you talked a little bit about having to scrutinize every part of uh, industrial operations and lubricants are just going to become one of those. Now, that is kind of a bit of a window maybe into where we're headed right now when we do things like carbon assessments of a lubrication program or a new product that we're trying to introduce, do you find at the moment that that is a compelling kind of piece of evidence uh, for end users? Like when they see a carbon assessment, is that something that they jump on? I think the answer to that is really divided by industry segment and geography. So, for example, I think in Europe, we see it's it's much more common for our customers to ask about uh, life cycle assessment of our products or lubricants. Uh, I think there's a much higher interest level currently in uh, um, in understanding carbon footprint and, and life cycle assessment. Um, 
we're, and we also see in certain verticals as well, the in, marine industry, for example, we see there's a, a very high interest in, uh, in understanding carbon footprint um, and also energy efficiency. So those are a couple examples, but I, I do see a day where organizations essentially have two sets of accounting, financial accounting and carbon accounting. And uh, so we already see many organizations are already doing this. And I think the widespread adoption of carbon accounting will compel eventually users to investigate, you know, every aspect of their operation, eventually, including lubricants. So and uh, one final thought on that is that I think maintenance organizations currently, if they're just reporting on the efficiency of their program, I think there's a, a big benefit in actually reporting on the, the same efforts are making if they can actually quantify how that is impacting their organization's carbon footprint. You know, I think that increases the visibility of the maintenance organization and, and really only has upside. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, one thing I'd, I'd maybe have a question about, though, is that historically, whenever I've tried to do one of those uh, assessments, it's always been quite difficult to get um, hard data, right? So the energy efficiency of of lubricants or even the life cycle cost like in terms of carbon cost of, of a lubricant the numbers have always been a little bit nebulous um so you know part of making a, a compelling case for making a change is often having like hard evidence um but you know it's often hard to get direct measurements in a lot of these industrial machines of you know the, the the effects of the lubricant as well as the total life cycle cost. So, are there any standardized ways that we can do some of those assessments? I would say there is not today, but shortly there will be. Um, I think what you're asking is it's a really good uh, question because I think you know one of the challenges we see, with, especially with energy efficiency or energy efficient lubricants, is that well. They're more expensive, and users aren't readily willing to to invest in these unless they can measure, you know, measure some sort of gain. And uh, so, and it, you know, an energy efficient lubricant is typically made with more refined base stock, with viscosity index improvers. There's more complex chemistry. It can be twice as expensive, um, and uh, but it can provide, you know, th maybe three to eight percent improvement in energy efficiency. So. How can you? How can users more readily adopt this? So I think um, ASTM has developed a standard D seventy seven twenty one that helps directly compare one product to another um, and help measure its uh, its energy efficiency. So that's really good. It, it it really helps you set up an experiment to minimize test variables. But it's still fairly complex for most end users to to be able to measure this. And what they would ideally like is just to see their you know their energy bill go down each month. But there's so many variables involved in that; it's very very hard to measure. So it doesn't actually mean that because you can't measure this directly with your your monthly energy bill that there's not a really significant improvement to moving towards more energy efficient lubricants. Um, but we need a, a common methodology to measure this. And I think this is where maybe mathematical models may fit into this. Um, so there, there, right now, there's not really any kind of industry vetted 
mathematical models that really that you can plug in all the various different parameters of a uh, an equipment and be able to determine, you know, by having a more energy efficient lubricant or lowering the viscosity, the output will be an energy savings of X. Um, however, I think we're moving in that direction. There are a lot of, there's a lot of research going on in this, in this space right now. Um, Texas A&M, their turbo machinery lab just came out with a mathematical model that looks at uh, reducing um, or how lower viscosity lubricants will reduce energy efficiency or increase energy efficiency in gearboxes and in turbo machinery. So I think we're uh, we're starting to see a lot more work, but ultimately, I think um, I think we're going to be somewhat reliant on some of these mathematical models that are then vetted to, you know, well-controlled field field systems to really measure some of these small savings that, that we can see with uh, across the board and, you know, more energy efficient lubricants. Yeah, that's interesting. And having some of those standardized methods, I think will help a lot because, um, you know, like you were saying, setting up some of these experiments in the field can sometimes be pretty challenging and, and very technically involved. And in some cases, you know, I don't mean to, you know, dismiss anyone here, but it's often beyond the reach of a lot of organizations to be able to, to set up something like that as well. So to be able to have some kind of standardized mathematical model, I think would, would really, would really help. Um, one thing I would say though, is, I mean, you and I are both familiar with this, that there's sort of two aspects to our industry. There's, there's the technical side and then there's the people side. Right, and you can make it a, a very convincing technical argument, but if the people are not receptive to it, uh, then it's going to fall on deaf ears. So you you talked briefly about the types of industries that might be a little bit more receptive to this uh, this kind of work. Are there also particular positions within organisations that are more receptive to this? So I don't know in, if in your experience, for example, that. Uh, maybe procurement tends to have KPIs that are more focused on sustainability or is there is there an emerging you know job class which is like a sustainability officer I don't, I don't know you tend to deal with uh, the bigger end of town than I do so what what's your experience been well it's interesting I so we have seen this emergence of this uh, new um, role in chief sustainability officers and um, many companies have have these roles um, and you would think that they would have a really, really high interest in uh, the carbon footprint of lubricants. But at least so far in my experience, the real reality is that lubricants still play a fairly small role in the overall carbon footprint of, uh, of an organization. And they're really focused on more, you know, the, the low, big, low hanging fruit that they can have a significant impact on lowering their, their carbon footprint. So in our experience, it's actually really the reliability engineer that actually works for a company who is really striving um, and on a path to decarbonization um, that has the most interest, at least in our experience, in in uh, the carbon footprint of lubricants. Mm, interesting. Interesting. Now, when we make these assessments, um, I think primarily at the moment we've been talking about energy efficiency, you know. If we, if we go to an alternative, so maybe it's a synthetic lubricant, maybe it's a, it's a PAG, there are usually some measurable benefits or even if we drop a viscosity grade, you know, there's some measurable energy efficiency benefits. But in the articles that you've published in Precision Lubrication, uh, you, you talk a lot about um, this 
idea of a, a complete carbon assessment of the, the life cycle of the lubricant. Um, and there are two particular terms that you use there, uh, one being cradle-to-gate assessments and the other one being cradle-to-grave. So maybe if we could step back and first just talk about, you know, general terms uh, about how we do life cycle assessments and then what is the, the difference between those two different types of assessments? Excellent. Well, life cycle assessment is really the gold standard to um, fully measure the uh, the environmental impact of a product. So cradle to gate refers to the total environmental impact a product has from its the moment of its inception to its manufacturing and to the moment before it leaves to the customer site. Uh, to the gate of uh, of shipping per se, or um, so if from a lubricant perspective, this would en encompass extraction of the crude oil, refining, production, blending, packaging, and um, and so that would be a total carbon footprint of uh, so cradle to gate of of that lubricant. Cradle to grave takes into account two more things. It takes into account the actual use of the product and what happens to the product at the end of its life. The ironic thing is that this actually has a, the cradle to gate um, is a smaller impact than the actual cradle to grave. The What people do at the very end of the life of the oil, for example, if they incinerate the oil at the end of its life, that actually has a larger carbon footprint than all of the other previous steps. Um, and uh, so, and the other, the challenge in this is that most LCAs that are done that are made public are typically cradle to gate. So it's actually hard to get full cradle to grave analysis, life cycle assessment of, of lubricants. Um, so we're starting to see that more and more, but um, you know, the, at the end of its life, it really depends on if the lubricant is re-refined or if it's incinerated. And those are fairly big differences in, in carbon footprint. Um, but this is one of the reasons that that my company, Fluitex, so focused on maximizing the life of in-service lubricants, because that actually has the biggest impact on reducing the carbon footprint of a lubricant. That is wild. I did not know that about incineration. Um, <laughs> that, that, but that's really interesting. And so if I could maybe uh, take some other terms that people have might, might have commonly heard of, is that cradle to gate versus cradle to grave almost like Let's say for, from the perspective of the lubricant companies, that's sort of the difference between scope two and scope three emissions, where because scope three is taking into account, well, we've developed a product, but it's the scope three emissions, which is the use of that product as well, right? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's a good, uh, um, that, that is definitely similar. Um, so that, one of the challenges, lub lubricant manufacturers that are, that are doing life cycle assessment actually really have no control once mm -hmm. it leaves their property over the use of the product or how it's it's treated at the end of its life. So it's understandable why there is, um, you know, they spend their focus on uh, cradle to gate analysis, um, but still, you know, just understanding the carbon footprint from the very beginning to the very end of the product is, is I think, a really important way of uh, trying to assess what actions you can do to then lower your carbon footprint. Yeah. And, and a little bit like we talked about with the calculation of energy efficiency benefits, um, is there any kind of standardized way to do these life cycle assessments? I'd, I'd heard somewhere that 
API might be coming out with some kind of standardization this year. Um, do you know anything about that or are there any alternative ways to, to calculate the, the total carbon as assessment? So a life cycle assessment is governed by, there's a couple ISO standards. However, the ISO standards are very uh, general. So um, American Petroleum Institute is coming up with a uh, standardization methodology to specifically for the lubricant industry. Mm -hmm. um, so I think this is going to be a really important standard to basically standardize a methodology on how everybody is measuring the, the total carbon footprint and, and going through their life cycle assessment. So yeah, I, I'm not sure when that is going to be published, but uh, I've seen some drafts of the uh, the document, and I think it's going to be a very, very useful, powerful document. Yeah, it'll be handy. I mean, both from, I think it, it sort of inspires a bit of confidence in the process, right? In that, you know, people on the manufacturing side will have a standardized way that they can do these calculations, which will make it much easier as well. Because at the moment, trying to find all that data is is quite difficult. And then from an end user side, you know, you have the confidence that a standardized process was used, you know, to come to that number. So I think, you know, overall, uh, that will help increase uh, the, the confidence in the system, which is, which is fantastic. Um, now, one of the things that you've talked about in the past was this idea of the overall sustainability of a, of a lubricant product being a com combination of different factors. So you've got, for example, there's the formulation part. So you know, is it a synthetic or not, for example? What, what is it composed of? Um, you have the the end-of-life assessment, so how are we disposing of that product, whether it's re-refining or incineration. Uh, the way that it's manufactured, the energy efficiency of the lube oil itself. And, and one thing that you do carve out, though, is that the toxicity element um, is, is kind of a little bit separate, right? Because it doesn't directly affect the carbon assessment of the lubricant but it does have downstream effects you know if we release into the environment there's kind of that that risk profile associated with the, the lubricant now my question would be is there a way at the moment to easily or readily make all of that information available to the end user um, in some kind of like standardized labeling form because i think the challenge that end users have at the moment is that because there's not that much standardization in these uh, carbon assessments or life cycle assessments, they're getting sold the environmental benefits of products, but it's often comparing apples to oranges to mangoes. To, um, so, be, so it makes it very difficult for them to make uh, you know, a clearly defined choice about what is going to be better for them. So is there some kind of way that we can convey that information readily so as an industry? That's a great question. And there's no question there's a lot of greenwashing that we see in the industry that, uh, um, but I, you know, I think that API's initiative to have mm -hmm. a more standardized way of doing LCA, I think is going to be really important. Um, but the next step is, you know, there's still many lubricant manufacturers have not done life cycle assessments of all of their products. Certainly a lot of additive manufacturers have not either. So, we still need a lot of work to be done to to properly do these LCAs. But ultimately, I'm not sure if this is going to be 
publicly available information until end users actually start to ask for this. Mm -hmm. And when end users are starting then to evaluate um, different products and one aspect of it is its overall total carbon footprint. And when they request this on a bid sheet, you can be certain that lubricant manufacturers will first make this information publicly available. And second, I think a little more effort will be put into the actual uh, carbon footprint of the, the overall carbon footprint of manufacturing a lubricant. So I think this is probably going to be end user driven, but we are seeing more and more end users that are interested in this. Um, mm -hmm. But there's, there's a nice upside for, uh, you know, lubricant manufacturers that are already kind of down this path. Um, Cause if they, if they are in fact making a product that is, uh, that has a lower carbon footprint, um, that is, you know, with um, demonstrable energy efficiency improvements, um, this can actually be a, a, a powerful sales tool for them as well. Yeah. Um, now, just a question. I'm really sorry because I haven't prepared you for this one, but I've just thought of it. Um, in Australia, for example, we have a sort of a packaging scheme, which kind of relates to the type of work that you're talking about. So uh, consumers, well, actually, sorry, it's the lubricant companies actually pay a tariff uh, based on, you know, production of, of product. Uh, I think I'm pretty sure they do it on a per litre basis. And that money is set aside that is then put into re-refining schemes as kind of a subsidization exercise. Now, that has, you know, in the way that you're talking, where incineration can potentially eat up the majority of the carbon in a, in a life cycle assessment. So any avoidance of that incineration stage uh, has probably maximum impact from a, from a carbon standpoint. That's an example of government intervening in the market to kind of uh, force that technology in, in some senses, right? Do you see government anywhere else uh, getting heavily involved to try and make some of those technical decisions? So I think that um, not just in Australia, but across the world, a lot of governments have focused on um, on trying to re-refine, um, especially used motor oils, but uh, set up re-refineries and encourage people to uh, um, to to purchase re-refined oils. Um, in the U.S., the uh, uh, government is required to first try to purchase um, a re-refined lubricant. Um, and, you know, if you think of the U.S. government and uh, all branches of military, that actually is a, a fairly large amount of lubricants that are used. So I think there's a, a pretty significant role a government can play in trying to encourage um, the use of re-refining. And you see this, just there's huge disparities in, uh, I think Italy has something like the high 70s um, of the used oil that's collected is actually re-refined. And the U.S. is more like uh, 30, 32%. Um, and you could see in countries that have spent, that have put a lot of effort into building in a re-refining infrastructure and that have government support end up with a much higher percentage of the used oil being refined or pre-refined. Yeah, that, that, um, th thanks for that. that. That's really interesting to see that, how it progresses uh, across the planet. And I think a lot of it is, um, yeah, how 
it, some of it's cultural, right? Like how much is the government willing to to intervene in, in markets to drive specific technology decisions? Um, maybe as, as we start to round out this interview, I always like to ask a bit of a question about the future. And I think one of the things that would be of interest to the people on this uh, who listen to this podcast would be, you know, what does it mean for the future of lubricant formulations? Like how might we see lubricants themselves change as a result of some of these life cycle assessments? So, you know, just off the top of my head as an example, you know, something like a, a, a polyolester seems to kind of tick a lot of the boxes when it comes to the different sustainability criteria that you talked about, right? So, um, you know, long life, right? So they, they get extended uh, life. They can be manufactured from uh, renewable sources, you know, a, a bit of this and a bit of that, right? Um, they can have some energy efficiency benefits. Um, so that, that would just be an example off the top of my head, right? But that would seem like a, an obvious choice, like, oh, um, it might mean that uh, polyol esters become a little bit more popular. But are you seeing any other specific technologies uh, that could be uh, adopted by the lubricant formulations, which would help us in kind of like all the different parts of the pie when it comes to uh, sustainability? Yes. So th that's a really good question. I think the um, um, using plant-derived polyol esters or plant-derived pegs absolutely can fit the bill for uh, low-carbon, long-life lubricants. Um, and I would say a lot of investment right now is being made into plant-based lubricant technologies. Um, and the ultimate goal is that these base oils or these technologies have superior performance compared to their mineral-based counterparts. Mm -hmm. um, that really is the ultimate goal. I think one of the challenges we see is that even if you have a carbon negative or carbon neutral oil, um, if you don't use it in the best application, then you're going to run into some challenges. Um, so for example, if you're using a, uh, a peg in an application where there's potential mineral oil contamination or a polyol ester or an ester-based fluid that is really susceptible to hydrolysis and there's a lot of water in that application. Um, so we, we've seen, or in, in some cases, I think that uh, these plant-based formulations have a, um, they've gotten a negative um, a reputation. And in many cases, it's just because they're, they're maybe not used in the ultimate application. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so I think that's, that's one of the key, um, one of the key factors when you're using any lubricant, you need to make sure it's, it's optimized for that actual application. Um, but long-term, I see significantly more growth in these renewable base stocks, certainly compared to mineral oils. We're already seeing that mineral synthetic oils are growing at more than twice the rate of, uh, of mineral oils, um, in the mineral oil market. But I think we're going to continue to see that. Um, but in the short term, mineral oils aren't going to be going away anywhere, anytime soon. They're going to be with us for a long time. So whatever can be done to try to maximize their life and performance really only has a positive impact on end users' maintenance budgets and also can improve their overall sustainability. Mm. Yeah, and, and I guess uh, just on that, I mean, obviously, you guys at Fluitech are doing a lot of work around um, life extension of, of lubricants. 
whether that's through you know filtration or you know top treat additives and things like that um so there's 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 that component of it there's also some new technologies uh you know skf's got that uh was a double separation technology that um i'm not entirely sure how that works but um it, are you seeing any other kind of exciting technologies just around life extension because you already talked about the fact that you know um, incineration can make up a huge component of the life cycle assessment so extending the life then becomes extremely important um, so you know you put those two factors together and it says okay life extension of mineral oils which are going to stick around for a, a long time is still going to be an incredible uh, incredibly important component of, of sustainable lubrication so is, is there anything that you're seeing that's uh, really exciting on the horizon? I, I think that, uh, you know, this is this is a different question than on engine oils. Um, engine oils, it really depends mm-hmm. on uh, actually, you know, the science behind the formulation. If you make a better formulation, the oil could last longer. With min, um, industrial lubricants, the two predominant factors on why you have to change an oil is it becomes contaminated. Or if you can keep it relatively contaminant-free, the sacrificial additive components deplete. So I think it really comes down to dealing with those two components. If you can keep an oil contaminant-free, clean, and dry, um, that's going to do a lot to extend the life of the oil. And then the um, you know as the oil is used and all sorts of internal contaminants like uh, sludge and varnish are produced. You need to be able to remove these uh, these dead additives and and degraded uh, hydrocarbon molecules. Um, but then ultimately, you know, if you want to have a big impact on uh, extending the life of the oil, you need to look at replenishing the in-service, uh, uh, replenishing the additive components in in-service lubricants. That is a complex uh, subject, and uh, and um, you know we certainly don't subscribe to just uh, adding buying a, a additive off the shelf and dumping it into an in-service oil. Um, but uh, that I think has a lot of a lot of benefits and a lot of potential. I think um, you know in the in the coming decades. Yeah. Hey, great, um, Greg. Thanks so much for sharing your insight. Um, for everyone that hasn't already. Uh, downloaded, I should say, a copy of uh, Precision Lubrication magazine. Uh, there's already been a couple of issues published, and by the time we get around to publishing this interview, it should be approximately on round three. So um, I'd encourage you to do that because um, Greg's uh, articles on sustainable lubrication go even more into depth than I think we've probably gone today. Um, so they're really good reads. Greg's a great writer, so um, highly encourage you to, to pick up a copy. Um, Greg, thanks so much for sharing your insight, and uh, I'll have to have you on again soon. <laughs> Wonderful. Rafe, I appreciate it. Thanks so much.